Thanks for downloading Beyond the Fall of Winthrop. Since COVID-19, e-commerce has gained traction in Southeast Asia. The e-commerce market forecasts a quadruple in value from 2019 to 2025. Join Professor Sharon Purchase along with our alumni experts and learn why e-commerce is the future of business and the impact of it and our alumni in Southeast Asia. Hi everyone, I'm Sharon Purchase. I'm currently the head of department for marketing at UWA. I've studied at UWA for my um, Master of Business Administration and I've done my PhD looking at business relationships. My favourite UWA memory that's a really interesting question. For me, it was Christmas out in the lawn, bright sun, lovely weather, and the whole of the school getting together and having a really good time. So just mixing with all the people in the school was wonderful. So um, I would like to open it up for Jackie. And would you like to introduce yourself, Jackie? Hi, Sharon. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Jackie, and um, I am head of digital solutions for rather large utility based out in Asia. And my background is really very much transformation, digital uh, technology, at least the last 25 years, which is really unusual because uh, what I did with UWA was capital finance and accounting. So it's been a long and winding road, I think, to where I've, I've ended up uh, over the course of my career. Uh, my favorite memory of UWA, I'll tell you, it's the people, you know, um, that whole very uh, friendly, having fun, yet really putting in the heart yards to do the work, uh, do the assignments. I remember all of that. And yes, Sharon, lying on that lawn, from about, I reckon it was about 2.30, we all headed to the Oak Lawn and did a lie down. So those were good, fun memories. Okay, thanks. Derek, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, Sharon. Hi, Paul and Jackie. Um, my name is Derek. I joined UWA in 2006. I did double degree, uh, civil engineering and finance. Currently, I'm working in a logistics company called Ninja Van, who they have, um, they're currently in Southeast Asia uh, focusing on marketplace logistics. So logistics um, primarily supporting um, emerging marketplaces such as Lazada, Shopee, and these kind of uh, dominant players in the Southeast Asia region. My favorite memory of UWA was um, the beautiful campus, again, the lawn, I agree, um, playing soccer with mates, um, hanging out at the tavern, and uh, looking at the peacocks. So, yeah, beautiful campus you guys have there. <laughs> hey, thanks. Paul, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hey guys, nice to meet you. I am Paul Harrigan, Associate Professor of Marketing at UWA. So I guess Sharon and I are still making memories. <laughs> um, I've been here 10 years, uh, teach mostly digital marketing. So your background's really interesting. Good to have a chat with you. Um, 
don't know if it's my favourite memory, but one of my main memories is when I had to teach in the octagon and I'd just come from the UK when the maximum class size was like 100. And here it was like 800. So I wouldn't say favourite, but uh, yeah, that's a, a, one of the lasting memories of, of working at UWA. Okay, thank you. So now I'd like to start the podcast and this is really around digital solutions and how digital solutions are going to change in the future. So Jackie, your experience at CLP is really interesting and you know Southeast Asia is a huge place. So your organisation has both stores and digital solutions. So how has COVID caused a shift in consumer behaviour that particularly in Hong Kong? Thanks for that, Sharon. So the whole Asia region is has really been quite exciting, um, I'm going to say, since the pandemic um, started. And um, the whole online um, economy has really just exploded um, in Asia. Uh, there's about what about they, they estimate about in Southeast Asia where Hong Kong is or Hong Kong is considered part of sometimes uh, about 600 million people and then at other times we're considered part of China and that's what about 1.3 billion people. Um, the short answer is if I look at just the Southeast Asia uh, region, which is a lot more interesting for us I think in certain ways, about 80% of internet users are digital consumers. And over the course of the pandemic, they've just become, um, uh, I'm going to say, more deeply involved in the online piece. So, you know, they, they're not just looking for wider selection and assortment, they're looking for price deals, but experience, in, increased convenience, uh, they're looking for payment options. But we've also found that people are uh, very willing to try new brands, right? So with a utility, it's not that much choice. It's like every market and Hong Kong um, uh, landscape for utilities is not like Australia where it's highly competitive. Um, there's a lot of retail uh, pricing and um, fight for the customer eyes that happen. In Hong Kong, it's quite stable it's not necessarily as competitive. However, what we're finding is that the consumer behavior still has shifted. So we're talking about things like um, uh, health and welfare being top of mind, ESG values, people looking at more sustainable and ethical brands um, online. And more interestingly, I think what we found was that there is definitely a learning agility of online habits that grew up during the, 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 the pandemic. So we're getting people that are, you know, they they were spending a lot of time on things like just online media, social media, and uh, they're getting a lot more efficient, a lot less patient, and they're screening and filtering out things a lot quicker. So what we're looking at is then, you know, fast forward about, I would say three years now, uh, the biggest growth area in Hong Kong, and it's, it's very um, reflective of the whole region, it's driven by four key sectors, right, in, in the online space. The first one has absolutely been food delivery. And you could say, look, it's because we have social distancing, we have remote working habits, and it's just sheer convenience because especially in Hong Kong, and a lot of people would have heard this, a lot of our food um, and restaurant places just, you know, got shut down. Um, and then 
um, you know, even when we eased restrictions, they were really not very um, conducive to restaurants opening. So a lot of our food places actually went online just to survive. Um, we're very lucky that it is quite a small geography. So things like deliveries and, uh, and, and logistics wasn't, wasn't exactly a big issue for us. But then you exploded across Asia. I think people have just found a way, businesses have just found a way in the food game to do just that. The other area is definitely e-commerce. Um, and uh, I think one of the changing things that we found is that the world has definitely gotten smaller. So I think we still like to think um, of things in terms of Europe and US and Asia and things like that. But actually uh, what we've found is that definitely there's an economy of one at the moment. Uh, there's definitely different characteristics that we see, but um, even as something that is um, very based or maybe very strong in one geography, we've found that our consumers are actually everywhere now. Third area really is around gaming. Um, the amount of gaming that went online, the amount of purchases in gaming that just grew um, over this period has been quite phenomenal. And the fourth period, quite interestingly enough, I mean, maybe more pronounced in, in the whole Asia region, more so than in Australia, was the thing around health as people, you know, went to look for answers online, went to look for updates and statuses online. So that trust that was, that, that grew out of people actually um, picking up facts and, and, and getting used to reading, um, you know, I'm going to say opinion and research and government information about um, what was happening uh, just in health updates, um, pandemic updates. I think that really started um, people's growing trust in the online world of health. And so I think where you see a lot of people now is that they will trust. They will trust, um, you know, getting their health advice off the online side. Okay, thanks. But you say they improved their trust, but there was a lot of misinformation out there at the same time. So how does that influence the how people access that information? There were, look, I think uh, in the last three years, the amount of... Um, I'm going to say um, classified as misinformation. Some people will classify it, classify it as opinion or, um, you know, uh, being good citizens, if you like, by passing on information they believe is true. Um, I think that has just grown um, in volume. I think it was always there. And I think people will discern what they they want to discern, uh, where they read things, whether it be on social media, be online sites, or it be through friends. I think that, um, as I said, economy of one, there are no uh, boundaries to where you get misinformation. You can listen to misin, you can uh, receive misinformation by listening to the news on TV, for example, if it's intended to misinform or it, it ends up misinforming. So. I think what people are, are, are doing is they're getting smarter about that. They're not having one data point uh, for um, the information they receive. It, it's like everything that is on uh, e-commerce today or commerce today, it's not just one channel of information. It's not just one channel of sales. It's not just one channel of um, you know research. They're actually um, putting their own data points together. 
as to what they then want to believe in. I think people are getting just a lot smarter at doing that sort of thing. Having said that, um, uh, believe it or not, the governments in Asia are a little bit more trustworthy uh, than in other areas. So we found that in Hong Kong, uh, even though um, there was a perhaps not as much confidence, I would say, in certain uh, key figures, um, uh, certainly the information that was coming out um, in what was recognized as formal and official uh, sites and, and places were actually being followed um, uh, by by the people that were reading them. Hey, Jackie, yeah, I, a lot of that really interesting. I, I guess my question would be, hmm. you know, are there different behaviours among different segments of consumers? I know that's a broad question, but like just based on demographics, you know, are, are some people maybe being left behind by how everything has shifted to mobile commerce, social commerce, all that stuff? Or have you seen, you know, the whole population move? I think in general, what we've seen is um, <laughs> the entire population move, actually. Um, although I caveat that by saying that certain segments have absolutely moved faster than others. And here's the interesting thing. There is no difference in age, right? So a lot of people think, oh, it's age related. But actually what we're finding is that um, these segments actually move quite evenly. I think um, uh, what we found is actually quite quite the opposite, where the younger generation, um, where they've grown up in an online social media space, they're actually being more careful with data. They're actually being um, more careful engaging online and they're a little bit more reticent um, to um, commit even to um, com research into a sale, um, uh, you know, buying something, uh, downloading something, etc. That's just a lot more, I'm going to say, uh, awareness as well of, as wariness in, that, in the younger sector, interestingly enough, than the older sector. I think the biggest uh, uptick that we actually did see was in that 55s and above. And perhaps, you know, I, I explained that by saying perhaps that sector was never really online to begin with. So obviously, like statistics are on their side. So it doesn't surprise me that there's a much higher skew in that area. So, Derek, can I bring you into the conversation, please? Yeah. Indonesia, it's huge. It's right beside. Western Australia, so you're one of our closest neighbours, which is nice to see. Um, and logistics. Logistics had its challenges recently. Would you like to give us an idea of what those challenges were and how um, Ninja Van dealt with those challenges? Yeah, so maybe if I can give a little bit of a background about Ninja Van. So the, our core business is to, um, we are last mile delivery player. So we do um, the last mile delivery logistics for uh, e-commerce in the region. So Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, Singapore, Malaysia, and then these countries. Um, I would say that Indonesia specifically has um, its own challenges because we have 17,000 islands. So we are not like a one big continent or one big island that usually it's easy to um, 
handle the logistics like you can just do like China, right? It's very easy to to deliver things in China. But Indonesia, we are spread across so many islands. Um, the infrastructure is not anywhere near um, as good uh, as it should be. Um, traffic jams everywhere. So we do have our challenges uh, in that sense, um, especially in the domestics delivery. Um, I happen to handle the um, actually the cross border. So, so the way Ninja Van services e-commerce is this: the main business they service downstream. Um, so they they do the last mile delivery, and at the moment they are creating new business units to kind of tr try to differentiate themselves from the other logistic players uh, in the space. So. What they're trying to do is they're trying to service um, the e-commerce sellers upstream now by helping them uh, with their cross-border procurement. Because as we know, most of these goods, are they came from China, right? So um, we are um, have created a new business unit to, to service this, um, these sellers upstream. Um, not only that, we have also um, created um, other business units to also support the trade financing of these sellers. Um, we have created a new business unit for fulfillment, warehousing, so these sellers can actually drop ship their goods from China to Indonesia and don't actually have to touch the goods until it reaches the, their end uh, users. Um, I hope that, that kind of explains um, how, how, um, what the company does. Biggest challenges in Indonesia in itself, having so many islands and also the supply chain that we know that has been halted by the by the pandemic. I think we all know that it's just something that we have to deal with. Uh, cost has gone up a lot. There's been a lot of port congestions, a lot of delays. It's just something that you know sometimes just uncontrollable. The how many islands does Indonesia have? I always forget the statistic, but it's crazy. I think it's about seventeen thousand. Yeah, because um, mm. one of the things I was reading about with the like e-commerce, I don't even like the word e-commerce because electronics like such an old term, but like is this new thing Q-commerce, where like quick commerce, okay, and you you want the thing the same day, yeah, you know, so you order it and then you and you get this in in certain parts of the world. I know Dubai do it sometimes mm. with Amazon. Is that possible in Indonesia? Indonesia, so um, so the highly then uh, the high density um, areas, you that that segment of quick commerce is actually growing, especially for groceries. So there's new startups coming up that allow you to buy your groceries within 15 minutes. Um, it'll be delivered to your house within 15 minutes, guaranteed. Um, if you're living in those like high density areas, like if I can draw comparisons to Perth, maybe like. East Perth, South Perth, you know, those um, high density areas, then you are really, you know, th this sector is really growing. Yeah, so you're right about that. Oh yeah, I don't think we've got that in Australia yet. <laughs> Particularly well, in Perth anyway. I think in Sydney and Melbourne, you do get some like clothes stuff. You can get fashion delivered same day in the CBDs, but not mm. I'd like to ask you a question, Derek. You said yeah. a lot of your new um, supplying of business comes out of China. How did you find that 
over COVID when many of the industries in China went into lockdown. How did that yeah. affect the supply chains? Uh, it affected it a lot. So a lot of port congestions, suppliers were closed down. So we just had to deal with it. Like, you know, it's something that we don't have any control about over, I guess, Sharon. Did, did you go to other suppliers or did you just delay well, everything? I think if you look at China's lockdown, they locked down like a few cities, um, like not all the cities, like when they locked down Shanghai, I think the other cities were still open. So, so that brings me up to the next point. Um, so one of Ninja's new business unit is also the sourcing. So Indonesians being Indonesians, they don't speak Chinese. Um, they rely on, let's say, Alibaba to, to look for supplies in China. And so the way we have kind of positioned ourselves in the market is, you know, we have a team in China, like we can bridge you between you and the Chinese suppliers. So when one of your suppliers get locked down, you know, you come to us and we can, you know, source new ones for you. Very interesting. Paul, I'd like to ask you a question, please. So do you think that online is the future for business? And how has online built brand loyalty? Well, I'm a bit biased, Sean, because I teach digital marketing. So <laughs> I hope it's the future because then I've always got a job. Uh, I mean, yeah, I don't think we could argue that it's not the future. Um, yeah, I think it's just how you define online. So it used to be like, you know, laptops or for computers or whatever, and then maybe apps, mobile sites. Um, now it's moving towards just even social commerce, you know, so you're flicking through Instagram or TikTok or WeChat or whatever, uh, and it, the commerce experience is embedded in there. So it just looks like a kind of native post or picture, but you can tap on the picture and you see products and you can like a couple of clicks and major purchase. Um, so I think that's one thing that will will change and make it accessible to more and more people. But I was looking at some stats and um, retail e-commerce grew in Southeast Asia by 50% in 2021 compared to 4% in retail generally. Um, and this year, that's 30% to 8%. And the gap gets closer, but retail e-commerce is growing at a faster rate than standard retail. Um, I mean, that's obviously driven a lot by China, but I think like Singapore is, is crazy for buying online and even Vietnam. I saw that it was like 7 billion US dollars in 2020, and it's going to be 29 billion in 2025. That's the e-commerce retail market. Um, so I guess the loyalty question is an interesting one. Um, everyone thought, like, asked this question when the internet came along. And they're like, oh, you know, the internet's going to give us all this choice and people aren't going to be loyal anymore. But that didn't really happen. You know, people do like the comfort of knowing which brands they deal with and which websites and which apps. And also the brands kind of need loyalty, right? Because we all know how expensive it is to get new customers. So they kind of incentivize you through loyalty schemes um, to stay in like the, the loyalty management market, the software around it, the consultancy around it's massive. So whether that's through like points, you know, if you're an airline or 
know, gamification in, in online gaming or even in online shopping, I think loyalty is always going to be there. And as Jackie said, a lot of it is around the values, you know, that companies hold. So people, I think, more and more want to remain loyal and deal with companies that have matched their own values, you know, from a social perspective. Um, so I see that. I've read, I've read a lot about that. Um, and customer service as well. So, you know, is is the usability of the user experience online something that uh, will make you come back? And that's a really key issue. You know, coming back to that social commerce thing, if I'm a brand, am I selling on social media or do I have to go, to, go from your social media account to your website? Even something as simple as that can lose people because it's just an extra click. And, you know, um, so I, I think the loyalty thing will, will um, persist. I just think it's harder for brands to, uh, and it's different for brands to kind of enhance or maintain that loyalty. Further to that, you mentioned lots of different channels, and we've got the rise of what we call the omni-channel, where consumers are using different channels for different purposes, and they're looking at multiple channels. How do you think that's playing out? I don't personally think that the omni-channel thing works that well from a consumer perspective. Um, I I still think there's a a lot of work to, for marketers to do, not just marketers, but from the data side. Uh, you know, cookies are disappearing, so it comes down to like zero-party data, so the data consumers give you, and that data will provide like what what we call a single view of the customer. From, from the firm side so that they can know that, hey, I'm the same person that called you yesterday or if I'm on you know, WeChat or Instagram, I'm the same person that came from the website. Um, certainly my experience as a consumer is not that good from that side and any marketing work that I've done on that side, co companies are swimming in data but really find it hard to have that single view of a customer. Maybe you can do it across different pages on your website, but then across social media, website and call center, that's it's hard. You have CRM, customer relationship management systems that help, but they're mostly used for like customer service. And that's a whole other conversation. So I think omnichannel is tough. A lot of it's left up to the consumer and their own devices, to be honest. Jackie, how do you find that in the power industry, given what services you offer for your consumers uh let me let me preface this by saying two things i think um the online channel is inevitable right no matter what type of business or industry your organization is in in that um with the um adoption of uh you know general population of um internet usage um you know becoming digital consumers and things like that i think it's just inevitable and if you, your organization doesn't have a e-commerce strategy then it really does need to have one and that doesn't always mean you have to have your own online channel but you must at least have a um an, an e-commerce strategy that necessarily takes into um, account a presence online because in this day and age it is one of um, it is one of the most significant ways you're always in the customer's 
um, front of mind, right? Because this is where people's eyeballs and this is where people are spending their time on. Um, the, like most utilities, let me talk broadly about um, the industry at large, right? Like most utilities, it's not necessarily the type of um, product, if you like, product or service that lends itself to an online environment, right? So would you go online and buy and hook yourself up to an electricity provider? No, the short answer is no. Would you, however, buy things that um, uh, complement your lifestyle, that complement um, uh, the way, uh, you know, your personal taste? So, for example, in Asia, electro electric vehicles are massive. The, 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 the uptake of EVs is just uh, leaps and bounds ahead of something like say Australia, because your job is much bigger, your ability to have charging infrastructure is a lot lower, right? So we don't have as many of that. And uh, where you have large governments driving uh, things like decarbonization targets, sustainability targets, and very strong in ESG, you have countries that are massively just turning um, uh, public bus fleets into electric uh, electric buses, turning public taxi fleets into electric taxis and things like that, right? So those sorts of things then sway, um, you know, a whole generation of um, buyers, whether that be shared economy of, um, or, you know, ride share, whether that be um, looking for um, new EV charging stations. So there's a lot of things I think you can still do in that, I, I guess, that e-space that complements um, your base business. But then, you know, if I if I pick up what you said about omni-channel being tough, I do agree with you. I think it's extremely hard, tough to make your omni-channel. And I think that old, um, uh, that, that, that um, thinking that, oh, someone will, you know, buy online and purchase in store and, you know, maybe hop from channel to channel, I think, you know, the, there will come a time where data just debunks that myth. And I think with um, this, this, you know, I'm going to say this short attention span and impatience that's probably been brought on by the pandemic, uh, we'll probably find people um, have channels of choice, just as they have websites of choice. And, you know, they may very well have two or three of them, but they're still not going to be, you know, I'm going to do one thing here, another thing there, another thing there, and just keep hopping around until I get what I want. I think more so what's going to happen, and um, uh, statistics have shown shown it in uh, Southeast Asia. So this is the same uh, Google Tamasic um, Bain report that says, uh, where a consumer has had a positive experience, right, online, they uh, tend to um, transact by multiples, so uh, online, in another online channel. So if they were, say, for example, ride-hailing customers, and they were very satisfied with the ride-hailing um, experience, they would be um, more inclined, and it's multiples, it's like 1x, 2x, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, they would be more inclined to then spend that sort of um, money online again. And I think that's that multiplier effect you get in that particular channel because that channel, that pull or that attraction of the channel is, is that strong. I dare say there will be a lot of things though that will not end up being online uh, on purchase through an online space. 
just because of practicalities, you know, utilities being one of them. Okay, thank you for that. Um, do we have any other questions? Any other suggestions that people would like to discuss? Uh, I did. Um, I did watch a video recently from the uh, Economic Intelligence Unit, and they did say that, Jackie, that you know people with say with ride sharing have this really good experience, or with you know, Airbnb or whatever, they then expect that same experience online or on an app with you know their doctor or their dentist and or their university, and they just don't get it. So you've massive differences in um i don't know user experience um and you know these traditional organizations really have they struggle because you want that real-time stuff um but the bigger organizations existing organizations can't provide it so and what happened in these other sectors is that the existing organizations didn't provide it and they were completely disrupted so I don't know, like real estate, higher education, <laughs> there's certain big risks around um, sustainability, I think. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I think like um, when you talk about, you know, people's experiences online, it's exactly that, right? So um, if, if, for example, your organization just uh, lacked customer service, and I'm talking about customer service in terms of process, culture, you know, the skills and talents. Just because you move it online does not really create that space for you to go, oh, and look, we've got customer service online. At the end of the day, uh, the, the customer's um, expectations is probably going to be like um, the right share experience. It's probably going to be like an Amazon experience, right? So you've got to be able to respond um, be very responsive online when it comes to customer support. You've got to have relevance. You can't just, you know, be very lazy about, you know, the chatbots you use or the virtual assistants you use. You've actually got to be have very relevant support um, processes in place. You've got to have very strong return refund policies. You've got to have very strong, um, you know, um, I'm going to say privacy um, uh, policies in place before customers will actually, uh, well, one, interact with you, but also then continue to interact with you along that lines. But Desi, Derek probably has a lot of experience in this one. You're absolutely right. Um, brands are now trying to leverage digital to, um, you know, trying to understand their customers better. And you can't just leave it all, all to digital. Like I've been on the receiving end of being frustrated when my old customer service was replaced with a bot. And I don't know if you guys have felt the same, but you know, I want to talk to a person. I want I want someone to understand, you know, my problems as a customer. So I think brands should leverage digital, but they shouldn't, you know, blindly rely on them. Yeah. They should use it as a complement to to what um worked well in the past. I've never had a good experience with a bot ever. <laughs> I, I just don't I don't get the purpose because it's like it's like an FAQ section which I can read. So yeah. It's like it's really bizarre. But maybe that's for a different segment than me. I agree. Yeah. Like the Gen Zs, they don't like to talk, like they they like to chat and things like that. So yeah. I do agree with you, but they 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 have to cater for all the segments, like not just Gen Z, right? Yeah. Yeah. Correct. And and I think like if you if you do a dissection of say 
where your biggest um, consumers consumer segment are, and then where your biggest potential consumer segment are, you probably find that, um, uh, and this is why omni-channel becomes hard, that you would actually have to continue to service um, all your channels to enable them uh, to be able to go to channel of choice. And I think the cost of acquisition of a customer and the cost of advertising and branding when you've actually got to maintain that many channels in addition to the, an e-commerce channel or an online channel is, is quite phenomenal. Um, and uh, it's, it, you know, one of the things that mentioned before was um, the whole point of um, us going to a cookie festival, right? And with, um, with there being it's like triple, triple, I don't know, quadruple whammy, right? So you don't have cookies now. The cost of advertising on sites are going up, social sites, Google, search engine sites, et cetera, are going up, right? And the cost of acquisition is going up. So then you have these low barriers of entry and you've got this influx of D2C suppliers or even B2B suppliers coming in, right? So you know, sometimes these online channels are not as cut out as they used to be, and you've got to carve your way through what I call an ocean full of vendors. Like, um, I think someone was saying to me, is it um, uh, Tokopedia has something like 12 million, 12 million uh, vendors or something like that, or something like phenomenally crazy. I think something like Ali has about 10 million just uh, retail vendors. It's something like in the millions. So then the question is, how do you rise above to the top of the pile? You know, how do you um, um, create that attraction? And you may have a very good brand or, um, uh, or you may use a lot of very good branding um, methods, but then um, how do you actually not only attract but then retain and then keep these customers coming back to you uh, if you have an online only um, strategy all right so how do you uh, you know it's, I think it's a balance in, in this day and age okay so I think we're we've covered the topic quite well thank you all for participating Jackie thanks for your input Derek and Paul, thank you again, and we sign off. With over 140,000 graduates worldwide, UWA's alumni community provides engagement and support while creating sustainable lifelong connections to the university and to each other. Let us know where you are and update your details today.